Just about everybody remembers, I think, the incident in which David sinned with Bathsheba and a child was born as a result. And you remember that momentous occasion when Nathan came to see David. It's one of my very favorite Old Testament stories. Nathan was a very favorite man of David's and perhaps very few men could have spoken to David as Nathan did and gotten by with it. Nathan came and sat down with David and told him a strange story. He told him the story of the man that was very wealthy as opposed to the man that was very poor. And he said the man that had many herds and flocks just, uh, just was very wealthy while there was a very little poor little man that had only one ewe lamb, just a little small baby female lamb. And uh, this animal was like a pet. It ate out of, its, out of his dish. It slept in his bosom. In other words, he treated it as a pet like we do our dogs and cats probably, some of us today. And he said, you know, uh, a stranger came to visit the wealthy man. And rather than the wealthy man taking an animal from his herds and flocks and giving it to the stranger for something to eat, that's a common thing that they do in that part of the world, and we do too to a large degree. And he said instead of him taking an animal from his herds, he went to the poor man and he took this one little animal that he had and he fed it to the stranger. David was absolutely incensed. And he said, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall be put to, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold. For he hath shown no mercy. And oh, he just went on and on. And as we sometimes say, he waxed eloquent about uh, the terrible things that were going to happen to this fellow who had been such an insensitive character. And when he had finished all of this and went through his diatribe, Nathan looked at David, and I've always felt like perhaps pointed his finger at him and said, Thou art the man. You're the fellow I'm talking about. You're the fellow we're dealing with in this story. And David knew then for the very first time that his secret was out. He really felt like that perhaps it had been covered up because after all, and I've not taken the time to tell you the whole story, but after all, when David had sinned with Bathsheba, he thought, you know, that he had covered it up by first killing her husband or having him killed by the swords of their enemies. And then later, after she had mourned him for a period of time, he called for her and she became his wife. Of course, David knew by that time that she was expecting a child. And so... After a while, the child was born. In fact, scholars tell us that by the time Nathan came to see David, the child was perhaps a year old. And so David thought, and everybody else thought, that this was David's child. It was a little boy. And Nathan told David, your secret's out. And he said, you're not going to die. The first thing David said was, I, I have sinned. Well, that was pretty obvious. But he said, you're not going to die God hath put away your sin, but he told him that the child would die. And you remember the story how that David went into, uh, oh, he went into a long period uh, until the child died of fasting and laying on his face and re refusing to eat or to drink 
uh, and uh, beseech, uh, beseeching God that perhaps the life of the child might be spared. But one day the servants gathered around and David could tell by their hushed tones that probably the child was dead. And he asked them, Has the child, is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. And David got up and worshipped and refreshed himself and ate a meal. And these people were just nonplussed. They just couldn't understand. And they said, why did, you know, why did you not do this before the child died and then fast after the child died? And you remember that David said, the child is dead and he cannot come back. I shall go to him, but he can't come to me. Well, it's a very touching story and one that I like to tell really in its entirety. But when this all happened and Nathan came, it seems that after Nathan had finished talking with David and rebuking him and disciplining him uh, as, uh, as he did, and by the way, the child did indeed die, as I told you, and then later David knew Bathsheba, his wife, again, and another son was born, and you remember that his name was Solomon, and after David died, Solomon became king and ruled Israel for another 40 years as David had. And so the history of Israel is very, very interesting in that way. But you know, after this child died and after Nathan had finished with David, it seems like that something awakened in David that had been, that had been hidden uh, maybe in the deep crevices of his mind. He realized now that the sin was out in the open. He thought it was hidden, but it wasn't hidden. And that the child did indeed die. And at some point after this meeting with Nathan, I don't know exactly when, David sat down and apparently wrote the 51st Psalm from which we took our reading tonight. And it was in that Psalm that David prayed to the Lord, O Lord, create within me a clean heart. He seemed to realize that sin originates with any of us in the heart. And many years later, you remember that Jesus said in Mark 7, verses 21 through 23, For what from within, out of the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and defile the man. There are many, many reasons that all of us need to desire a clean heart. And that's what I want to talk to you about for just a few minutes. Because possessing a clean heart, and by the way, that may be the most important possession that we can pray for, a clean heart. Because th since this seems to be the fountain from which all sin originates from us, what better thing to pray for and beg for than for God to give us a clean heart? If we could just have a clean heart, so many of these other temptations that come along and, 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 and get us sometimes uh, would never happen in the first place. And uh, this would help us avoid the sins of pride, of lust, of deceit or ingratitude, of bitterness or selfishness, a lack of brotherly love, as well as the sins of envy and jealousy. Every last one of these sins can be avoided if we have a clean heart and a sermon can and perhaps should be given on each of them. But for tonight, for just a few minutes, I want to notice with you only envy and jealousy. As with most sins of this nature, 
envy and jealousy, and you know, by the way, uh, I've, I've been places, and perhaps you have too, uh, where you would, you would think, by the way people talk, that these sins have never entered their mind. You would think to hear some people talk, they've never been jealous. They've never been envious. Well, now I think there are some people who are just not plagued with that. And I'm happy to tell you this evening, and maybe that's one reason I like to preach about it. Uh, it's not a problem, particularly, that I have had to deal a lot with. I don't ever remember being jealous of anybody, uh, uh, certainly not with anything to do with the church. Uh, but I do know that some people have problems with that. And with, as with most sins of this nature, envy and jealousy seem to be considered as a sort of maybe a second-rate sin. If there is such a thing as some sins being worse than others, uh, it, most people like to think of these sins as kind of, well, that's kind of one of those things that you do sometimes, but it's not really all that big a deal. It's like they're not really that important. And some might even say that it's natural for some people to have uh, those uh, kinds of emotions. But I want to tell you something, folks. For those of us who ask the Lord to create in us a clean heart, these are vices that have to be done away with. They got to be gone from our hearts. Solomon knew that because he said in Proverbs 23 and 7, For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Boy, you talk about something true. Whatever you are in your mind, regardless of what you appear to others to be like, that's who you really are. Whatever's in your mind is the real you or me. What does all this mean? It has to mean that if we allow such emotions to remain in our hearts, the time will come when we will actually become envious and jealous and we will act accordingly. And the problem with those emotions is that they bring about such terrible actions and terrible deeds on our part later. Many sins become a temptation then that otherwise might not ever have concerned us, you see. If we allow envy and jealousy to stay within us, we're flirting with spiritual ruination. Make no mistake about that. Solomon said in Proverbs 14 and 30, a sound heart, get this now, a sound heart <coughs> is the life of the flesh, but envy the rottenness of the bones. Envy, Solomon said, is absolutely something that will destroy the very, the very uh, uh, skeleton or framework upon, uh, in which we live. Well, that's pretty strong. But in Proverbs 24, uh, 27 and 4, he said, Wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? Did you get that? Of all of these things that are bad, Solomon said, Who can stand before envy? Well, the truth is, no one can. Once a person becomes, uh, becomes eaten with envy toward another, the relationship is absolutely doomed. The person toward whom the envy is directed can never do anything to satisfy the envious enemy that he has. Every good thing that he or she may do will then be, re be uh, viewed with suspicion, disdain, and perhaps even outrage. That's a pretty sad condition for us to be in. Once you have that problem with someone, once they become envious or jealous of you, no matter what you do, you can never suit them. 
You can never do anything, even if it is good, that they will give you the credit for having done it good. They just won't believe it. They will believe you had some ulterior motive in doing that. I want to tell you something. The critic is always, I mean always, guided by an ulterior motive. If you look at Judas, now the terrible things that Judas did, but remember back when the disciple, when, when, when that woman came and anointed the head of Jesus, and Judas said this might have been sold for so much and have been given to the poor. John, I believe it was, was the one who recorded that. John said, not that he cared for the poor, but he carried the bag, and he was a thief. John was, uh, Judas was stealing, and uh, he could have cared less about the poor. I guarantee you that, uh, that, that uh, ointment would never have seen the poor, that is, the money from it would never have seen the poor. It would have lined the pockets of Judas. But you see, Judas would have been embarrassed to admit that. And so, rather than admit his real motives, he criticized the Lord and what was done for the Lord, and it appeared to everyone else to be something that was guided by, uh, you know, tenderheartedness toward the poor, when in fact the Lord knew and John knew through the inspiration of the Spirit that Judas didn't care a whit for those people who were poor. Every good thing that a person does, if envy and jealousy is is against them, every good thing that you do will be viewed with outrage, and that's sad. You know, our English dictionaries define envy as painful or resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by another with a desire to possess the same advantage. The term jealous is defined as being hostile toward a rival or one believed to enjoy an advantage. In the New Testament, there are two different words translated envy. One of these words can be used in either a good or a bad sense, and the reader must decide uh, from the context uh, what the meaning is, uh, actually is. In fact, I'm told that the word can be translated either envy or jealousy and is sometimes translated either way. The second word, though, means that the feeling of displeasure produced by witnessing or hearing of the advantage or prosperity of others, and this evil sense always attaches to the word. So says W.E. Vine in his expository dictionary of New Testament words. Now the bad one, that is, the, the word that is always bad, Mr. Vine says it, it, it is those feelings of displeasure produced by witnessing or hearing of some advantage or prosperity of someone else. Well, I think most of us are aware of what that's like. I remember being at a place one time when a lady came in with a brand new dress on. And I don't even remember what the dress looked like. It may have been very, uh, might have been very attractive, but one of the sisters was overheard to say, I wouldn't wear that thing to a dog fight. Well, I suspect if she had had it, she might. I think you can see the point. The distinction, Mr. Vine says, lies in this, that envy desires to deprive another of what he has, while jealousy desires to have the same or of the same sort of thing for itself. There is a little difference between the two, but they're, they're actually fairly similar, aren't they? 
It's interesting to note that both words, envy and jealousy, are shown to be works of the flesh in the, in the fifth chapter of the book of Galatians. In Galatians 5, verses 19 through, 19 through 21, the, the works of the flesh there are, are, are uh, chronicled, and those two things are considered to be part of the, words, of the works of the flesh. In verse 20, the King James Version has emulations, while the uh, American Standard and the New American Standard and the New King James translate the very same word as jealousy. So it can be translated and is sometimes translated either envy or jealousy. But you know, the possession of a clean heart requires us not only to eliminate all evil attitudes, but also to prevent or at least try to prevent their development within our hearts. In other words, it isn't enough to try to eliminate the bad attitudes. That's a good start. That's where we begin. But we must also do our best to never allow them to get started in the first place. Because once they start, it's hard to get them out. Pilate realized that envy was the real motivation of the chief priests when they brought the Lord before him to be tried. In fact, all of them were there because of envy, the Bible says. In Matthew 27 and 18, it says, For he knew that for envy they had delivered him. What a sad situation. They knew Jesus Christ was not guilty of anything, but they hated him. They were envious of him. He seemed to have it all, and they were envious of that, and so they wanted to get rid of him. Just a few days earlier, Jesus had come into Jerusalem to the praise and the adoration of the multitudes, and this infuriated the Pharisees who demanded that Jesus should rebuke the people, according to Luke 19 and 39, and they obviously were envious of him, and John bears record of that very emotion uh, in uh, John 12 and verse 19. You remember then that Jesus, or rather Judas, had become a willing pawn, if you will, to deliver Jesus in a setting away from the multitudes. He didn't deliver Jesus in front of everybody, he didn't give that kiss in front of the, uh, uh, the whole city of Jerusalem, but he wait, waited until they were away and out yonder in the Garden of, of, uh, of, uh, of Olives, out there away from, uh, from everybody, and that's where Judas came and delivered that kiss. The Bible says the reason they did that was because they feared the people, Luke 22. Isn't that amazing? Envy and jealousy never cause people, never cause people, to be courageous and strong. Rather, it, it causes those who are so infested with it to become cowardly and behind the scenes workers. That's what those things are good for. You know, it was jealousy that drove the enemies of Christ to make drastic charges against him before Pilate. The Bible says they accused him of many things, Matthew 27 and 13. None of the charges were really convincing to Pilate though he realized this was an innocent man, and I don't think he bought any of it. But, uh, you know, the people even threatened Pilate when they saw that Pilate was a little suspicious, and they said, if you don't condemn him, then you're not Caesar's friend. Now, when you read that and think about it, that's ludicrous. There wasn't anybody in Jerusalem that liked Caesar. Everybody despised Caesar. He was a Roman ruler. And nobody in the world was, was as despised as the Romans. And now they are so hypocritical. And because of their envy and jealousy, 
They are willing to portray themselves hypocritically as being friends of Caesar when in fact they despised him. Oh, that's the kind of, that's the kind of things that happen when those, uh, when those things get started in their, you know, in their life. They began stirring up the people, the Bible says, with loud voices, uh, according to Luke 22, and this worked. It's strange that uh, something that doesn't make much of an impact, if it's given reasonably, uh, seems to have more strength if it's given with a great deal of violence and a great deal of volume, and somebody speaks loudly about it, people will come nearer listening then. In this case, as with so many others, Envy drove political expediency, if you will, and cowardice to the highest level. The high priest and the elders lied about Jesus. They perjured themselves. And then a rank murderer went free. Pilate sentenced an obviously innocent man to be crucified, and Judas later hanged himself. As Solomon said, who can stand against envy? Well, we're to put away all envies. First Peter 2 and verse 1 said, Wherefore laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies, listen, and all evil speakings. Very likely the evil speakings that Peter was talking about were the result of the envies and the hypocrisies and the jealousies in the first place. And so this means that we have to leave such things in our past we don't allow them to take up residence in our heart. And let me just say this evening, if there is somebody in this congregation or in some congregation that you've got it in for, and if in your heart of hearts you realize that there is some envy and jealousy there, do yourself a big favor and absolutely erase that because it will do nothing but bring you to grief later. You would think, you know, that a single command and a simple command to put these things away would be sufficient. But the Holy Spirit supplies additional stern reminders. And James said in uh, uh, James 3, verses 14 and through 16, James said, but if you have, now this, remember now, he's talking about, to, he's talking, about uh, talking to people who are members of the church, but if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not. Now, you know, you don't need to be surprised if this is something that is in your heart because this has been going on and been in the hearts of men and women since the days of the apostles. I rather suspect it's been going on since the, the, the first days people were upon this earth. But James said, if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not. That is, don't be, don't be glad about that. And lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. Listen to this last statement. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. You see, it all just acts as a fountainhead for everything bad that you can imagine. And so, that's why I said a moment ago, if these, if these things are in your heart... Do yourself a huge favor and just erase them. The Apostle Paul told the Corinthians that they were yet carnal, remember? Because of their envying, because of their strife, which was undoubtedly the result of the envy to start with, as well as divisions. It's almost like the progression of sin. You've got envy and then you have strife and then you've got division. 
And one sort of brings about the other. It's a cause and effect situation. That's 1 Corinthians 3 and 3. And Paul also worried that when he came to Corinth, remember? He said, I'm afraid that there might be debates and envyings and wraths and strifes, backbitings, whisperings, tumults. See, this is nothing new. But if you look at the church at Corinth and realize what a pitiful situation they were in, God forbid that we ever allow such a situation to take place or take up residence in a congregation where we live and where we worship. Paul said he was afraid of those things. And he was also afraid of finding some who had not repented of a fairly long list of immoralities that he mentions in 2 Corinthians 12 verses 20 and 21. The point I'm trying to make here is that envy and jealousy keep awfully bad company. Even the false teacher is under consideration there. The Apostle Paul said the false teacher, not consenting to the words of the Lord, is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds. You know what evil surmising is? That's when you hear that somebody did something nice and you surmise that there was an ulterior motive behind it, just like Judas did. Well, they did this or that, yeah, but they had a reason. They did this and that because of so-and-so. And the truth of it is, we don't know that that's true. We just surmise that it's true. And so we rob that individual of the credit that's due him or her when, in fact, we don't have the right to do that. We can't, meet, we can't read a person's minds. Well, on and on, the list could go. But it's obvious that we must try our best to keep these things out of our minds and never let them get started in the first place. It may be impossible to keep something from drifting through your mind from time to time, but we don't have to give the bad things a place to live in our minds. Get rid of them and try to think on good things. I remember as a boy listening to Brother Gay, and he was talking about this very type of thing. And he said, you know, it may not be possible for you to never have a bad thought. It may not be possible for you to never uh, have an evil thought. But he said, you don't have to let them live there. He said, you know, a fellow may not be able to keep the birds from flying overhead, but he doesn't have to let them build a nest in his straw hat. And so that really, I think, captures it pretty well in his uh, kind of earthy country way. So I mentioned these things this evening. And you, you know, when you think about it, that, that all of this was written by David after he had sinned with Bathsheba, after he realized what a fool he had been. Yes, David had been a fool. A wise uh, military uh, tactical man he was, but David had been foolish. He was foolish enough to allow the wife of another man to capture his heart. And to take his, you know, to take his fancy. And he did just one thing after the other that was bad. And it just kept getting worse as time went on. And that's the way sin usually is. It's just kind of like a great big snowball that you start rolling down a hill. And as it rolls, it just gets bigger and bigger. And that's the way it is with sin. But try to imagine the emotions that must have been going through David's mind when he sat down and wrote the 51st Psalm 
And as he wrote the words, Lord, create in me a clean heart. Imagine the thoughts that were going through his mind. You know who he was thinking of. He was thinking of that mess with Bathsheba. And what a fool he had been. Now, Lord, create in me a clean heart. That's a wonderful prayer for all of us to pray. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.